Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. It's a determined, if dubious, committed, if cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, often wrong but rarely in doubt, exercise in elevated gas baggery that neither rain nor snow nor heat nor gloom of night nor the toxic rantings of the nuthouse right. A president attempting to invalidate a legitimate election and stage an auto coup, complete with an armed insurrection at the United States Capitol, nor... More broadly, and arguably even more disturbingly, the capture of a decent-sized chunk of our political, social, and civic spheres by a cadre of incoherent, insidious, conspiracy-addled, autocracy-craving, authoritarian-worshipping lunatics, hustlers, grifters, nihilists, and nincompoops, none of it, none of it has kept us from our duly sworn duty and obligations, giving you, our listeners, a fresh episode of this podcast week after week after week after week. Maybe not without fail because, you know, hashtag epic fail is one of our many mottos around here, but certainly without a pause. We've been doing that for more than two years, haven't had a break. All of which is to say that I am plum shagged out and desperately in need of some R&R And with the midterm election now comfortably in the rearview mirror in our democracy, amazingly, if I will admit a little unexpectedly, still intact, it seems like a suitable time for the Hell and High Water Home Office to give itself a fucking break. And so for the next few weeks, that is exactly what we are going to do. And we'll see you back here on the other side of the holidays, tanned, rested, refreshed, revitalized, and raring to go, ready to get back to cranking out more tasty content. In the meantime, don't despair. We're not leaving you entirely in the lurch for these weeks. To the contrary, every Tuesday morning, per usual, you will find a hopefully unfamiliar episode of the podcast doing the backstroke in your feed, dropped there by the able AI factotums who will be mining the store while we're away. And while these episodes come over the next few weeks may not be fresh or, strictly speaking, new, They will be piping hot, a carefully curated series of Hell and High Water Golden Oldies, which those of you who've been around from the start may remember, I hope fondly, and those of you who came along sometime later may never have encountered at all. Given our focus on politics these past few months and our desire not to take a dump on your mood of holiday-inspired good cheer, we've decided these encore presentations will avoid that topic like the plague and focus instead on culture, entertainment, technology, and such, with a run of some of our most favorite guests in those realms over the past two years, including this beauty right here, which, whether or not you've heard it before, you will not want to miss. And so with that, we leave you to it with a hearty and heartfelt namaste. Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to part two of a very special double-stuffed XXL edition of Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Our guest today is Michael Render, aka Killer Mike, frontman of the raging, righteous, apocalyptic, and politically essential hip-hop duo Run the Jewels, outspoken activist for racial justice, fierce advocate for black entrepreneurship, high-profile surrogate for Bernie Sanders, and tireless booster of his hometown Atlanta, where he owns and runs the dopest barbershop in the country, the Swag Shop on Edgewood Avenue. Over the course of a couple hours recently, Mike and I went deep on a wide array of topics. Race and police violence, COVID in urban America, Democrats and Republicans, Biden and Trump, the Georgia Senate races, Stacey Abrams, Barack Obama, and Dave Chappelle. And also, 
run the jewels' blistering record from earlier this year, RTJ4, which got absolutely incomprehensibly robbed the other day when the nominations for this year's Grammys came out and RTJ4 got, wait for it, none. Yo, Grammys, get a fucking clue. Anyway, because it was so vast and sprawling, we broke that conversation in half and turned it into the first ever two-part episode of Hell and High Water. If you haven't heard part one yet, stop listening to this right now. Go and listen to the first installment, and then come back right here. If you have listened to part one already, then you are permitted to proceed. And brace yourself for more fire and brimstone from Killer Mike Render, as he picks it up and lays it down with yours truly right here on Hell and High Water. I would implore everybody who's celebrating the day to remember it's good to be a humble winner. Remember when I was here four years ago? Remember how bad that felt? Remember that half the country right now still feels that way. Please remember that. Remember that for the first time in the history of America, the life expectancy of white people is dropping because of heroin, because of suicide, all these white people out there that feel that anguish, that pain, that mad because they think nobody cares, and maybe they don't. Let me tell you something. I know how that feels. I promise you, I know how that feels. If you're a police officer, and every time you put your uniform on, you feel like you got a target on your back. You're appalled by the ingratitude that people have when you would risk your life to save them. Oh, man, believe me. Believe me. I know how that feels. Everyone knows how that feels. But here's the difference between me and you. You guys hate each other for that. And I don't hate anybody. I just hate that feeling. That's what I fight through. That's what I suggest you fight through. You got to find a way to live your life. You got to find a way to forgive each other. You got to find a way to find joy in your existence in spite of that feeling. And if you can't do that, come get these nigga lessons. Thank you very much and good night. So that's, uh, so that's, that's my uh, nigga. That's who that is. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's David Chappelle. Yes, sir. <laughs> that, that is, that is the Dave Chappelle. Um, on Saturday Night Live, the Saturday night after the election, the uh, only a couple hours after it was declared that Joe Biden had won the election, yeah. reprising a role that he had performed four years earlier under different circumstances in yes. 2016 when he did uh, Saturday Night Live the Saturday after Donald Trump won. And uh, interestingly, it's the case that Dave was down in Atlanta just before he went up to New York. He was working out uh, his set yeah. Uh, in Atlanta, just a few days before that SNL appearance, this one in 2020, yep. that little part that we just played was the part that was directly, but he did a lot of other stuff in the, in the monologue and he, uh, you know, beat up Trump for various things and talked about COVID and blah, blah, blah. But that was the part that got a lot of attention. Yeah. And Mike, I saw you reacting to that as we sat here and played it. I know it's probably not the first time you've heard it. You probably saw it in real time and, and yeah. I've heard it multiple times since, but you're still, it still obviously rings a bell for you. Yeah. And I ask you, like, you know, part of what's brilliant about Chappelle is that, first of all, he's become this voice, right? I mean, like on 846, the special that he put out in June on Netflix's YouTube channel in that 
post-George Floyd moment. He's just, people now look to him yeah. like to help us understand what's going on in America, especially where there's racial components to it. And so they bring him on SNL and he does that thing. And you, I've listened to that bit a few number of times and there's a lot of ways you can read it. I'm curious to like, was you listen to him in that part of the monologue? What do you hear him saying? Okay, so contra- uh, uh, trigger warning. Trigger <laughs> warning. Um, I put up one time uh, the, 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 the human being that the trigger warning is a human being that the, that the, the quote is from. But I put up on my Instagram one time and some people got mad. Some people w- weren't. Minister Louis Farrakhan had something from back in the 80s when he was he was still young. You know, his hair was was, was black. He was a slimmer man. But it says, don't laugh at those you defeat. So some people are going to just hear that name and they're going to tune out. Now, I don't believe in Abrahamic religion. So I, I don't I don't take religious people. You know, I'm, I'm but there was something in that 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 made me post it, made me say, you know, there is something in this because I have in this election cycle saw America so divided, it scares me. And the reason I say that is because the people that are the good guys, or I've thought about the good guys, have been gloating, not at the win for everyone, but at the loss of the bad guys. And I don't mean, I don't mean simple political losses. I mean people getting knocked out in the streets, people losing their homes or loved ones. And I had to check myself to say, don't get too haughty. Don't get too too filled with self-love that you start to loathe those you disagree with. If I truly was affected by the gospels that my grandmother forced me to learn and go to as, as a child, right? Forced to go to church. But you learn about this revolutionary character called Jesus. And you get to see him engage spiritually, Satan himself, who we know he does not agree with, politically, and members of the, of the church, of the synagogue, that did, the people they did not agree with, and those were the two parties that cooperated to assassinate him. And from a very people perspective, the people that he loved and adored and he was willing to die for that betrayed him, and Judas and others, right? If I want to truly be Christ-like, then I have to, in my win, be as humble and be as earnest for the group as I am in my losses. I have to resist the temptation to become Trump once in power. I am often said, it's often said, Michael, you're different from other celebrities I've met. You're kind, you're humble, you're but I've been treated like shit before. So I know what it feels like to be treated like shit. So part of my being becoming Michael is I try my best not to treat people like shit. Even if it's people I disagree with, even if it's a shitty motherfucker, I don't have it in me anymore to be happy to see you lose. I don't need a loss for you for us to win. You know, I don't need you to lose for me to feel like a winner. I don't need to become what I hate in the moment I win. And what Dave to me was saying, who's Muslim, interestingly enough. You know, America loves to hate a Muslim. God bless our souls, right? Um, (laughs) You know, there's such a a wisdom in what he's saying that retains hope. Because I'm also a Carlin fan. By the time Carlin got to the end of his life, Carlin was like, you know what? I like human beings as individuals. Time you get two or more of you motherfuckers together, everything goes to shit, and I'm going to sit back and watch the shit show, right? He had just given up on humanity. 
You're talking right. about George Carlin. Yeah, I'm talking about Carlin, George Carlin. Yeah. Yeah. People don't know who Carlin is anymore. The no, fuck no, is I wrong do. I just folks out there. No, no, I, dude, I just, I, I, you just said Carlin. I just want to make sure everybody knew yeah, you were talking I'm about talking George about Carlin. Talking about George Carlin. He's white, okay. and I like him, guys. So, so we don't watch like no, this. Dude, I, yeah. I love George Carlin. I just want to. I just, you never listen, know what people when they hear listen, just the last name. You never know. <laughs> so yeah, George, I'm talking about George Carlin. Not talking about any communist or socialist. <laughs> you never uh, know, man. Yeah. Got to be careful. <laughs> if I say Marx, I'm talking about my friend, not Karl Marx either. Yeah. But I um. Carlin had just given up. He had given up on human beings. David, Dave still has hope that we can turn the boat before we go too bad. And I just want to encourage the people who who are on the winning side this time. Let's not become emboldened enough to treat the people who have treated us poorly the last four years the same way. I don't want to see poor white people suffer more because a job got done on them. They supported Trump as a champion and they didn't get much back for it, except for a stimulus check that they're going to owe back. They treated Trump as a champion as rural hospitals were being closed and COVID ravaged South Georgia, South Alabama, North Florida, in much the same way it ravaged major cities. They were duped. Dave gave us an opportunity to peek into our own psyche and say to us, If in this moment, now that we have power and platform, we act as though the way the oppressor treated us the last four years, we are no better than. So let's do better. And if you choose not to, here come them nigga lessons, you know, and nigga lessons are hard lessons to learn, niggas. That's for white niggas, too. There is a class that is the bottom of this country. And it is not good. If you're in Jackson, Mississippi, it is hard. If you're in the Gulf of Alabama and Florida, it is difficult. It is hard. If you're in rural Louisiana, rural Georgia, rural Tennessee, it is as hard as any major industrial city where you're getting shit on. You're going to have to start to understand that those who don't look like you may have more in common with you than those that do. And you're going to have to start to act and operate in that way. You got to say to yourself, did I watch the good Lord bird? You know, did I watch the story of John Brown on Showtime? Did I watch the book written about a black, but written by a black man about a white emancipator willing to draw blood? And if you didn't, why not? Why aren't white parents making their fucking children watch that show the same way my grandmother made me watch Chaka Zulu and Roots? I didn't want to watch no goddamn Roots. I didn't want to watch Chaka Zulu. Your grandparents made you do it. They understood that you needed to have some historical context. And they were yeah. probably going to have a more difficult time getting you to read Roots. So you had to sit there and watch goddamn Roots. But after you finished watching Roots, you understood that I have a responsibility to my ancestors to be the best possible Michael I could be. So my question starts to become, now that we have won, how will we act differently and be a better example for what America should be? And it's not just putting someone in office, guys. Now that you know better, you got to do better. Every day of your white Anglo-Saxon Protestant life, every day of your progressive policy life, every day of your black bourgeoisie, I'm a Democratic Party member, we won life, has to be different now. You have to engage those that, I, I meant what I said about the OK Cafe lady. If Susan ever wanted to have a conversation with me, I would gladly have a conversation with Susan. I would help Susan understand that my kill your master shirt is not about you, Susan, because you're not my motherfucking master. You're just a white lady in the South. My master's sugar. <laughs> and I'm trying my best to defeat that motherfucker, Susan. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so what, what David is saying is we need to lay off the apathy and water our empathy. 
What he's saying is we need to seek togetherness versus racism and bigotry. What he's saying now is like Baldwin encouraged us to do is to be black, be white, be Asian, be all those, but be together in the times that the opportunity provide us. You know, John and I are friends, guys, for people who haven't figured that out on the other side, right? We don't just love hip hop music and talking politics and shit. We have a love for human beings and we have a love for this country and we wish to see it work, right? He doesn't look like me. We don't share all the same experiences, even though we both have impeccable music tapes. Shout out to Run the Jewels, right? But what we have is a will and a want to see this country progress better. And I just challenge everyone on the other side of their mics, on the other side of these screens to do the same. Dave is challenging us like Baldwin challenges us. I watched an interview from Paul Robinson from 1960. He was in Australia. And I find myself saying the same things he said. And there is no reason we should be. My mother was born in 1959. There's no reason 60 years later I should be having the same discussions that were being had when my mother was one years old. And if we're having them, we have to start to say to ourselves as Americans, how are we all accountable and how can we figure out collaborating and cooperating to move forward? And if we don't, we must hold ourselves accountable for where we are. Yeah, we certainly do. And uh, we also have to hold ourselves accountable for the fact that this podcast is a commercial enterprise. So let's take a break right now and uh, do some business, sell some soap flakes, and then come back for more of our conversation with Killer Mike. And we are back with the one and only Killer Mike Render. Um, we still have uh, a couple of big topics to get to, Mike, and uh, let's bring on the first one, which I kind of just want to stick with uh, because we just talked about Dave Chappelle. And Dave is a, his artistry. Masterful. He's just so fucking good. Yeah. He and, and Rock are now on this other place where yeah. they're both, they're just doing stand up in a way that's better than anybody else by a long way. Yeah. And then in Dave's case, he's just, and there's no district. Hold on, Rock, pause. That's, that's Chris Rock, guys. That's just so you yeah. know. <laughs> 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 but but the, but then this is no diss to Chris Rock because I I keep always rattling around in my head that interview that Chris Rock did back in 2014. To goes to actually something you were saying recently about in the, in our conversation you talked about how much harder your your ancestors had it and yeah. I remember Chris Rock doing this interview with Frank Rich in New York Magazine in 2014 where he talked about the fact that his grandmother in within his lifetime his grandmother had to get her teeth pulled out by the I by, think by he the said vet. his mother. Or his mother by, by the, the veterinarian, vet, by, the veterinarian. by the veterinarian in South Carolina, Absolutely. because you couldn't go to get your teeth pulled out. You had, you, the white dentists wouldn't pull out their teeth. Absolutely. And it blew my fucking mind because it was just he was trying to make the point, hey, things are bad, but they're better, you know, Absolutely. because we don't have Absolutely. that anymore. So anyway, Rock's got politics. Chappelle's deep. Right. And the reason I'm praising Dave, because he has become a national like you turn to him, like, what does Dave think about George about Floyd? Him. What does Dave think about Donald Trump losing? What does Dave think about, you know, I don't want to overly glorify him, but like, there's like a philosopher king kind of quality to Dave. Yeah, at this point. absolutely. And in so, Africa, he's a, he'd be a griot. Yes. So I raise it because of this, because if I think about the cultural products that have come out in 2020, this year that has felt more apocalyptic in America than any year of my lifetime between COVID and the recession and George Floyd and Trump and all the stuff that's happened for most of this year. It's felt like end times here, right? Like I'm yeah. not an alarmist. I'm not a hyperbol hyperbolic person in general about like panic and uh, I'm not a catastrophizer, yeah. you know? 
but it's felt apocalyptic in America this year. A lot of shit has felt bad, right? And in the middle of all that, there is only one piece of music that has been the soundtrack to 2020, like that feels in sync with this time and this moment. And it's a, a record that you were making before COVID, yeah. like was <laughs> was Run the Jewels 4, right? RTJ4 is the record of 2020. It's the soundtrack of the year, and it captures this apocalyptic, doom-filled, scary, edgy, raggedy fucking moment we've been living through for, for months and months. And you made it before COVID, right? Yes. Before yes. the apocalypse really came. Yes. So I really want to understand, how do you as an artist let the world in, in the way that you do, so that the sound of the record the lyrics of the record, the full gestalt of the record rhymes with the moment in this way. And I know that's a question you're only because you're as articulate as you are. Do I think you could even begin to answer this? Because I know a lot of artists would be like, I don't fucking know, man. I live my life and I write my fucking songs. But like, I think you're going to be able to say something about how you translate your lived experience and the world around you and how it actually filters into the work in a way that I think I want to hear about because I, it's like you are in tune with the world yeah. in a way very few people are. Yeah. The apocalypse is always happening. Life and death are always happening. Good and evil are always happening. It's never stopping. What Elle and I did this time was make the best musical version of ourselves for this moment. We did that in Run the Jewels 1, Run the Jewels 2, Run the Jewels 3. And it just so happens that the best version of us landed at the time that people were most open to receive it. Usually you ignore the apocalypse because you can go out, smoke hookah, drink. If you're in Atlanta, get strippers to dance in your lap for $5 a dance. If you're white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant, you're in your suburban enclave. You know, you got your fucking Mazda minivan. You got soccer's on it. The pandemic forced everybody to stop, sit still, and look at what was really going on. Not what was, what is constantly going on in the world. War, famine pestilence, disease are always happening. You usually don't give a fuck because it's not happening to you. AIDS in the 80s was not happening to anyone except my gay uncles and his group of men friends. And no one gave a shit until it was their uncles dying. Nobody gave a shit. Black people have been dying at the hands of the state since we were brought here and no one gave a shit until they had to see a eight minute, 47 second lynching in their living room on their 50 inch fucking televisions. And they couldn't tell their children to go in the other room. The apocalypse is always happening. There's a verse in the Bible. I'll never forget. And I believe it was when Jesus encountered Satan and said, where are you going to and forth the earth seeking whom I may devour? The times that are now are always. And if we forget that in the next four years and we allow the leaders of this nation to act as though that the cancer that Donald Trump showed us is there somehow is gone. If we believe that it somehow leaves with him, then we are participating in a willful act of ignorance that will bring us back here tenfold. And if we don't fix it, in the next 20 or 30 years, we're going to cripple what could have been the greatest republic to have ever existed on earth since 
the first republics were built in Africa. We are going to do what every great empire has done in narcissism and arrogance. We're going to destroy ourselves. And our music has run the jewels. A black man from Atlanta, a white man from Brooklyn, the exact same age, born a month apart, have spent over 40 years of their life witnessing this evil cycle. And all we've done is rapped about it our whole career. L rapped about it on Fantastic Damage. He rapped about it on Our Sleep When You're Dead. He rapped about it on Cancer for Cure. I rapped about it on Monster. Sony didn't give a shit to put Monster back out until now. When Run The Jewels is popping, I rapped about the exact same shit on my first album. I rapped about the exact same shit on rap music. I rapped about the exact same shit on God in the building. The exact same shit on pressure. The exact same shit. You just started to choose to pay attention because finally you suffered. So when Dave says, get ready for these nigga lessons, he's telling you suffering does not have a fucking color. Suffering does not have an anointed position just for those under you. Whether it's immigrant children sleeping without their parents under fucking aluminum foil blankets or black children being locked in juvenile for petty crimes, for extended sentences. It does not just stick with black and brown people. It's coming to your fucking door and it's not just for the white and poor. That's how we were able to do it. Because apocalypse is always happening. The evil is always here, but sitting inside because the disease is ravaging has forced all of us to have to acknowledge it. So now the question becomes, after you listen to RTJ4, while you listen to RGJ4, what will you do to improve the conditions that created RTJ4? And RTJ4 ain't it just sad and dark and pessimistic. There are laughs. Ooh la la is such a beautiful record to dance to in your driveway with your wife because I've done it. Walking in the snow as bleak as it can be is such a hope field and record full of empathy that how could you turn away from it? If you watch the Adult Swim special on the Holy Kalama Vote special and you see that moment where the music cuts and I keep rapping the first freestyle, that wasn't planned. That just happened. The Holy yeah. Ghost just moved in that moment. We can all share that moment together. Let's take the lessons we learn from this suffering. Let's take the lessons that we learn from this plague and this pestilence and let's exit out of them better human beings individually, better communities, and a better state. And if we don't, we have to hold ourselves as accountable as we're holding the bigot that's exiting office. We have to hold them as accountable as the people we voted into in office. And if we don't hold ourselves as accountable, we will continue to cycle over and over again when we don't have to. So I just want to appreciate everyone that supported RTJ4 because the core jewel runners understand these always are. The new audience understands that this stuff always has been now. And I think that as we grow as an band and as a group, that we're going to have an opportunity, like Nina Simone said, to as an artist to report society as we see it, to speak on the social conditions that we see. I think we're going to keep being able to give people not only news from the apocalypse, but the hope in the middle of the storm. You know, I feel like more than anything else, what Arna Jules Ford did this year was give people hope in the midst of poverty, pain, and pestilence. It gave them solidarity. I got multiple calls from protests, FaceTime calls of, look, Mike, I'm on the ground in Tampa. They're playing Run the Jewels walking in the snow. 
Mike, I'm in LA. They're pushing back against the police. The skateboarders are protecting the protesters. They're playing Run the Jewels 4. Minneapolis, they're playing Run the Jewels 4. That has meant so much to me because I have always seen these. I've seen these problems when I was 12. I saw these problems after Rodney King. I saw these problems when I was 16. But to finally have the fucking Amish show up. Come on, man, the fucking Amish, man. <laughs> the fuck out of here, man. When the Amish show up, you know change happens, man. You know what I mean? So I just want to, I want to thank everybody. And I do feel it's the album of the year. The Grammy nominations come out Tuesday. I would hope we would walk away with one because as much as I love singing and dancing, it's nice sometimes to get a trophy for it too. Because I would love to step on stage, either virtually or right there with my partner who does not look like me, who was not raised in the same religion as I or in the same way. And I would like to show America the distinct possibilities that exist when you put pride and ego to the side and you simply cooperate with someone out of a place of love and respect. And that's what Run the Jewels for is. Well, if you guys don't get the fucking Grammy, I'm going to burn the fucker down. <laughs> now that's a Run the Jewels fan. <laughs> well, that is uh, as good a place as any to take a break. Goddamn right I'm a Run the Jewels fan. Uh, but like I said, it's a good time to take a break. Let's go uh, hear a last little set of commercials here uh, on Hell and High Water, and then we'll come back for a final wrap-up segment with the Killer Mike Render. So we're back with Killer Mike Render for what uh, I think will be the final section of this kind of amazing interview. Uh, there's a one big topic that we left with a pin in it, and I want to come back to it, and that topic uh, is really the topic of the moment in politics, at least, and that is uh, what lies ahead for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Because of what many people saw as the existential threat of Donald Trump and another four years in office, people were like, a lot of people were like, you know what? I'm going to overlook the flaws of the people on, on who are on our side. Yeah. And whether that ends up being Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg or Cory Booker or whoever ends up getting our nomination, none of them are perfect. They're all going to be flawed. None of them are as bad as Trump, and I'm going to overlook the flaws. You know, that's the way a lot of Democrats saw it. And that's the way a lot of millions of Americans saw it in the end. But we knew from the time that this race started, you had people on the left and particularly people of color and particularly black people who looked at Joe Biden and said, that motherfucker's the author of that crime bill in 1994. He didn't just author it. He was proud of it. He was proud of it for a long time. Uh, and he incarcerated. The result of that crime bill was the mass incarceration of a lot of black people who spent a lot of time in prison. Yeah. Senator Harris, when she was uh, working Prose in California, yeah. prosecutor, uh, as attorney general, as a district attorney, put a lot of people in prison. And you heard people on the left worried about them and said, you know, I like her for a lot of reasons or I like him for various reasons, but I don't like their record when it comes to criminal justice. Yeah. Both of them. And now they ended up on a ticket together. Yeah. And they won. Yeah. Okay. So you have said before that you want an apology from them. That's a starting point. I want an apology. You an said apology that from months... Joe is what I said in particular. Yeah, specifically. And I said specifically. That to Kamala, yeah, to, to Kamala twice. Right. In, in so, but you also made it clear that you want an apology, but that's just the starting point. Absolutely. An apology yeah. is the place to start. Yeah. And then we have other, we have some other business to Absolutely. take care of. So people put away aside their concerns on this front because they thought that defeating Trump was the most important thing. But now these two people are going to be the president and, and vice president of the United States of America. So I, I ask you, Mike, you know, what do you want? Like what, what are your expectations 
within you. One of the things about you is that you are an idealist, you are an agitator, and you are also a pragmatist. Like you're the guy who goes and sits with Brian Kemp. Yeah. So you understand the pra- limits of practical politics. You also have understand the role for outside agitation and outside for activism. You also understand, you know, the dreams and ideals of of a whole people of, of, of you and your people and your community, et cetera. So as you weave all those together, aspiration, pragmatic reality, agitation and activism, all that together, like, what do you want? What do you want to see that you think is, I don't want to say realistic because that's the wrong question, but given all of those factors, what is it that you're demanding, asking for, expecting of this new administration as they take power? You ever heard of this Kingian nonviolence? I pulled it up, right? So the Kingian nonviolence was a methodology that Dr. King came up. So the first step is information gathering. There's six steps to this, right? So the way you determine facts, the options for change, and the timing of pressure for raising the issue in the co- is a collective process. So there's education, the second step. It's a process of developing articulate leaders who are knowledgeable about the issue. Personal commitments means looking at your internal and external involvement in a nonviolent campaign and preparing yourself for long-term as well as short-term action. Negotiation. It's the art of bringing together your views and those of your opponent to arrive at a just conclusion to clarify unresolved issues at which point the conflict is formalized. Fifth step, direct action occurs when negotiations have broken down or failed to produce a just response to the contested issues and conditions. And after you bring it to their ass through direct action, the last step of Kingian nonviolence is called reconciliation. The mandatory closing step of a campaign when the opponents and proponents celebrate the victory and provide joint leadership to implement change. So for those people who would choose to gloat in the moment simply because they defeated Trump and people they perceive as bigots. For those people who would choose to, after this interview or any other interview, to say, well, Mike's still set with the governor or Mike looks at this leader in a favorable way and doesn't look at that one. I'm going to repeat those for you, because before we get to the president and the vice president, the agenda must come from the people. That is what Ice Cube was attempting or is attempting and will continue to attempt to do. The first step to kingy and nonviolence. And we love giving props to Dr. King for getting us here. Whoa, glory. The I have a dream speech. But we never talk about the letter from the Birmingham jail where he speaks directly to ministers that disagree with him. He speaks directly to white liberals and he speaks directly to supposed allies. So I'm going to read this again so you can get to know Dr. Martin Luther King, the actual human being and not the figurehead that government feeds you to pacify you. The first step is information gathering. So regardless of what the president and vice president elect are doing as a people, We should be determining our facts and the option for change and the timing of pressure for raising the issue is a collective process. So right now, now that they're in, what is the information? Because it's not just for Michael, the businessman, rapper, activist, advocate to tell you. It is for me to be told by people who are organizing on the ground. Courtney Seals, Bear Strong, Gary Davis, Next Level Boys Academy. 
the sisters who have racial justice now, the New Georgia Project. It is up for me to be informed by them so I can then say to politicians, this is what the people have gathered from an information standpoint. The second one is personal commitment. How past voting day am I personally committed to this? And that means looking at my external and internal involvement to the nonviolent campaign and preparing myself for long-term action. See, short-term action is voting. I'm going to vote on January 5th, but on January 6th, I'm in somebody's ass about what the fuck needs to be happening. You understand what I'm saying? The day after the vote, pressure's on, motherfuckers. We here. What the fuck we going to do? Four-step negotiations. The art of bringing together your views and those views of your opponent, not people who agree with you. No matter who wins these senatorial races in Georgia, they're all American senators. So if we win both seats, if we win one seat, if we win no seats, you have people on the other side of the aisle who is going to be committed, right, to talking to their opponent in order to arrive at a just conclusion to clarify unresolved issues, at which point the conflict is formalized. That means, motherfuckers, you have to sit on the other side of the table with people who disagree with you to say this is the conflict, this is the formal conflict, this is what the fuck is going on. And what do we do? Fifth, direct action. If the conflict is not dealt with right then and there, then please know we're back out in the streets on your motherfucking ass. We don't give a fuck who's president. If we don't get qualified immunity gone, we right back on your motherfucking ass. If agents of the state still can murder us at will, we right back on your motherfucking ass. If we don't start to see moratoriums on property taxes for people that have lived in communities 60 years as gentrifiers and developers come in, we right back on your ass. No matter what political party you belong to. And thirdly, after we get off your ass, because we going to win the struggle, whether short term or the protracted struggle, because Eugene Debs started this trouble 100 years ago. You know, we talk about John Lewis and get in good trouble. Eugene Debs was in the Atlanta federal prison in 1920 running for president of the United States 100 fucking years ago. And 100 years later, we still have the same issues riding a motherfucking ass. So if you don't, we right back on your ass. And the sixth step is after we win this protracted struggle is the mandatory closing step of a campaign. Mandatory. King said it's mandatory. You sit with the motherfuckers you don't agree with after you kick their ass and you celebrate the victory and provide joint leadership. Not we won, not we dictators. That's what you just got rid of. So the question is less to me about now that we got Joe and Kamala in there, what are we going to just demand of them? No. What are we going to demand of people on both sides of the aisle? What are we going to demand they do to cooperate for the betterment of us all? I would encourage everyone listening to us to read King's letter from the Birmingham jail. I would encourage everyone to read the six steps of King and nonviolence so you can understand very simply, we are in this shit together. I don't give a fuck what political party you belong to. I don't give a shit if you pronounce the name Kamala, Kamala, or any other dumbass way you white, the white boy chose to say her name wrong or do down here in Georgia. You better understand the day after you win or lose that motherfucking election, we together. Or we're going to destroy this great state 
and we have the potential to destroy this great union, not the people who are protesting to destroy it, by, but the oligarchy that runs it, by pitting them against one another, by pretending somehow you're enemies, but after your political rallies, you talk to each other, you go to fucking dinners together, and if one of your planes breaks down, you say, well, you can ride on my plane with me. We have an opportunity in this country right now as a people to say, we don't give a fuck what party you belong to. If you do not do right by the people, we will burn this motherfucker down. That's it. Dude, I, you know, you are a fucking badass conversationalist. And um, I really am pleased to have had you on and took a little while to get this together. And yeah. shit's been happening and whatever. But man, it was worth it. So I appreciate the honor and respect you. And I, and I just thank you for engaging me. Because there's always attempt an attempt in this country to say, and, and it only happens, it seems that when people are black or brown, even from within the community, not outside the community, why yeah. should rappers and athletes and actors be able to speak for us? Um, I'm a student of Paul Robeson, and I'm a student of Jim Brown, and I'm a student of O'Shea Jackson, better known as Ice Cube, and I'm a student of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm a student of Bill Russell. Um, fucking Chuck and, D, don't yeah, forget. Chuck, oh yeah, Chuck, fucking man. Chuck. Come on, man. Absolutely. So I want to say that while we're on my side arguing who should lead or not lead, I want to say a few names to you: Sonny Bono, Clint Eastwood, Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> Ronald fucking Reagan. All mm. sang, danced, lifted weights, did other yeah, shit, sure. and yet they are heralded. And so I want to challenge black people in this moment to you know. Give us a break. <laughs> I am the, I am, I, I, as, as everybody knows, who knows me, I am the opposite of shut up and dribble. <laughs> exactly. That, 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 I am the opposite of that shit. I have always <laughs> been the opposite of that shit. And you know, I don't like dilettantes. Like, you know, fucking airhead celebrities talking shit. They don't know anything. Nobody about. Like, wants I, don't, I don't like dilettantes, whether they're celebrities or politicians, Absolutely. dilettantes, stupid, vapid, shallow, assholic dilettantes. I don't like them whether they're elected members of, of, of elected politicians or whether they're celebrities. If you're like that, you're I'm not interested. <laughs> if you're smart and grounded in history and rigorous and aware and connected and making like, you know, if you're booking worth talking to, I don't fucking uh, yeah, basketball me. player, violinist, <laughs> you know, ca cab driver, fucking golf caddy. I don't give a shit. Like, you know, if the that's just fucking you make it on the merits. I don't give Absolutely. a shit. Plus, it turns out you fucking people who are like involved in at leaders at the level of culture, whether it's sports or music or film or television, turns out you matter a lot more to people than fucking most of these politicians do. So you know, when you find someone who is in a position where they they have millions of followers who listen to their raps or watch them on their television show or watch them when they throw a long pass or kick a ball into a net, you know, if you find someone like that who also has fucking brains and ambition and, and, and right motives, like fucking lift them up. Don't shoot them down for Shouts fucking out. one to be part of the larger conversation. Anyway, uh, Killer Mike, it's great to see you and we'll do this again sometime. Absolutely. Um, Love you, my brother. Love it's you, brother. You. Love and respect okay. you immensely. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Killer Mike for being here. If you like this episode of the podcast, please subscribe to it and leave a nice rating in the Apple Podcast app. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Sari Soffer is our producer and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 